Hello, kiddies. It's your old pal, the Crypt Keeper. And you're listening to three guys in a flick. The good, the bad, and the gruesomely absurd. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. You need to listen to me. The world's a hungry place, a dark place. I've only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I don't know about magic. I always called it The Shining. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Dr. Sleep. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the Overlook Hotel. Hey, wait a minute. Haven't we been here before? Or did we ever leave? My name is Don, and to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Great party, isn't it? And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello there. How are you guys doing tonight? Groovy. Great. You? What about you? How are you doing? I'm Tell doing, us now. I'm doing just fine. When you say just fine, is it that you're in the middle of fine, or you just barely crested into the bottom of fine? I think I'm in the middle of fine. Or are you closer to fine? No, I, I think I'm in the middle. Okay. In the middle of fine. You okay. know what fine stands for? Uh, fucked up, insecure, neurotic. Emotionally. And emotional. Yeah. So I'm right in the middle. I'm fucked up and insecure, but not quite neurotic and emotional just yet. So there you go. Tonight we are talking about Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep comes to us from one of our listeners, Edwin. Uh, he hit us up and suggested this movie. So this one's for you, buddy. Hope you enjoy it. Released on November 8th, 2019, Dr. Sleep was directed by Mike Flanagan. Screenplay by Mike Flanagan. Based on the book, Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. And it stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, Cliff Curtis, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $55 million and looks to have brought in $72 million. So, I, I don't know if I would call that a success. Nah, well, it was really passive in the box office. In week one, it opened at, at number two behind Midway. And then uh, in the second week, it dropped to number six. And that was the week that Ford versus Ferrari came out. And then after that, it fell out of the top ten. Welcome Frozen 2. That was the new box office giant. And then by the week, by the fourth week, uh, Knives Out opened up. And so it just didn't stand a chance. Oh. Have you seen this before? No. What about you there, good sir? I did not see it in a theater, but I had seen it once before. Yeah. And I think I actually saw this movie before we saw The Shining and we reviewed The Shining. So I hadn't seen The Shining yet. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. I was interesting. a little backwards. That's really upside down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean... Is what it is, right? I remember when this came out and I wanted to see it, but I never saw it in the theater. So I, I watched it on a plane uh, flying back from somewhere and I really liked it. So when it came out, I bought it. So I've you bought it. it when it came out? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah. I was impressed. Really? Yeah. Because I just feel like this doesn't have much audience appeal to it. Unless you have a direct correlation straight back to The Shining and you are eager to pursue that story arc again, I just think that it is not something that's going to pass on word of mouth easily. Saying, oh, you should go, you should check that out. Um, I can see why. Um, I, I personally told people to check it out. So, but you're right. You got to have a soft spot for the shining because they definitely like to touch that spot, which is always nice when they touch that spot. Now, Mike Flanagan, I feel like he was put in kind of a tough spot and I personally think he did a good job of it in that he's dealing with Stephen King and he's also dealing with the Kubrick movie which side does he lean more to when he's making this movie? Does he focus more on the book, which would make Stephen King more happy? Or does he focus on honoring the movie, the original Shining movie by Kubrick, and which really pissed you know King off originally? How do you think he did on balancing those two aspects? Uh, I thought he did a fantastic job. Because you cannot ignore the Kubrick movie. You cannot. What you know about what the mean? book? Have either of you read the book? Dr. Uh, Dr. Sleep? Sleep? Yeah. No. I haven't either. But I do know at the ending of The Shining in the book, the hotel blows up, right? It burns down. But that's not what we got in the movie. So what Mike Flanagan does is he takes the climax of this film and he destroys the hotel the way it was meant to be. That makes King happy. So That was to honor the original book ending. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm not sure, I, I, it can't end like that in the book because... In the book, it shouldn't exist. No, in the, the so. book, I looked up the differences between the book version and the movie version, and there are a lot of differences between the two. Uh, but in the ending, you kind of still have a similar outcome. We'll get to how it ends. Um, there are some big differences, though, and I can kind of understand why Flanagan went the way he did. The, the biggest thing that I noticed was that it was a sequel to the 1980s movie. And I've always known that the it ends differently in the book and in the movie. So I knew that he had to incorporate that somehow. And I thought he did a good job honoring both. Mm-hmm. How about that? What do you think, Professor? What, comparing it to the book? Uh, well, leaning towards how, how do you think he did representing King as well as uh, representing the original movie that we saw, that we reviewed? Very pedestrian. I, I just thought it was, I, I, I thought that there was, there was a lot lacking in there in the mm-hmm. story, you know, for a two and a half hour movie, I thought that several, several of the characters should have been fleshed out more. And I was surprised how little of that we got. I was reading, uh, one of the reasons why King decided to write a sequel. He doesn't write a lot of sequels to a lot of his books. This one he decided to make because all people at different conventions and conferences kept asking him what happened to little Danny and they really wanted to know. And he was inspired from that to write a story basically saying what happened to Danny next after the outlook hotel. When we look back at the original shining movie, you know, I haven't read the book version or the Dr. Sleep version, but in that you got the high, a whole idea. It seemed to me the focus was the spirits of a hotel are driving a guy crazy. They've done it before. And they pretty much eat up his soul while sending him out to kill his family. So I got that impression. Whereas this movie almost kind of rewrote that, at least in my head, rewrote that in that that the the Outlook Hotel was really feeding on, you know, the shine of 
uh, Danny and it was focused on him. And that's what woke up the hotel and caused all the spirits to go crazy. No, I didn't get that at all. I didn't either. I, I, they, no, they I, I said I, that a couple of times in this movie. Okay. But, but Dick Halloran, he has the shine. Mm-hmm. Why was it leaving him alone? Because he wasn't as powerful as Danny. They said that the hotel had not tasted someone as powerful as Danny. And when it did, it wanted him. It wanted to consume him. It also went after his father. They say in this movie, because his father had a little bit of shine. Yeah, but I didn't get any of that in The Shining. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I didn't get that in the original Shining. In this movie, they talk about that's why it went after him, and that's what woke up the Outlook Hotel, was the fact that Danny was so powerful in The Shine. Well, well there you go. So you didn't get that. I was curious no. if, if you had sensed that, too, because they made a couple of lines here and there about that. They did, but like I said, I didn't buy it, because Dick Halloran, he was already there. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing about the Dick Halloran, they brought it up in, Rose even says this, Rose the Hat says at one point, as you get older, your shine isn't as tasty, it isn't as good, because it's it's almost like it's been oiled down. Well, that's what she said about Dan. And so that's why I'm thinking maybe the Outlook Hotel wasn't interested in Dick, because he was already much older and a tougher piece of meat. But I, I don't think the hotel was, the hotel was not, the hotel did not have the same motives as the true knot does. Oh no, they both feed on the shine, but for different reasons. Right, but I think that the the hotel was just haunted. It was just a, and Dan says it. You know, it's a dangerous place for us. It could be a dangerous place for them. I think the the hotel is just evil, and well, the way it, it, I mean. Of course, it's going to be drawn to Danny because he is so powerful, but we don't know that in the first movie. And and really, we don't need to know that in the first movie. And so if they tell us this in this movie, great. Awesome. Um, but overall, I think that the hotel was just fucking just evil. It was just an evil being. Well, the, spirit. Way, the way I took it, and I was trying to get into the head of Stephen King, was that the true knot fed on the shine to basically become immortal, to extend their life. It was almost like sucking out someone's life force. Whereas the Outlook Hotel and all the spirits within are dead and they're craving life force. They're craving basically almost for the same reason. They want to feed on live people's life force, not to extend their own lives, but just to feed on life itself. So let's talk about this cast. Ewan McGregor. Is this number three for us and Ewan? Uh, What was the second one? Moulin Rouge, yeah, Big Fish, Big Fish, yeah. So this is number three. He's bec- he's kind of becoming a staple of the three guys as well. Hello there. <laughs> What'd you guys think of Ewan? Uh, he was very likable for me, and I got to say that that uh, he was he was my anchor for the movie. He really helped carry the movie along for me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What about you? I thought he was really well cast in that. Um, one of the reasons why he got this role is because he's a recovering alcoholic. So to have a recovering alcoholic play somebody who's a recovering alcoholic, it was almost like it was a role written for him. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, Rose the Hat, what'd you think? She was cool. You know, I, I know her from, you know, Mission Impossible. And then uh, what was that other one that she was in just recently? Oh. Dune. D- Dune, yep. And The Greatest Showman. And The Greatest Showman. That's two for Rebecca Ferguson. What the? I thought Rose the Hat stole the fucking show. She was my favorite part of this fucking movie. She was always good when she was on screen. Yeah, she was so... Creepy. 
No. No, she wasn't creepy. creepy. Uh, seductive. She cre- yeah, she had some creepy moments, I thought, with some of the kids, the way she, you're right, she kind of seduced them in and, and basically made them feel comfortable and everything and then tortured the shit out of them. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to feed, right? Mm-hmm. I thought she reminded me of a Azazel. A little bit. That was the name of the cat. Did you catch that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, sort of. The cat is Azriel. Oh, fuck. Which, well. which is a whole nother thing. We'll go into the cat in a sec. Kylie, what do you think of Kylie? Oh, Abra? Abra. I thought she was fantastic. I thought she was great. I thought for playing the age she was playing and the role she was doing, she did a pretty good job. I thought what I really liked about her character is, and, it, and Rose kind of brings it up at the end, is she played a character who was essentially a good guy, was basically on the light side, uh, but she had a bit of darkness in her, and I, I liked the fact that she wasn't um, too beyond you know, playing up that darkness in her. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I thought she was a, a, a strong character. The, uh, the curious thing about this with the movie, though, was is this supposed to be her story or Dan's story? Because the, the movie kind of flip-flopped back and forth on that, and I wasn't quite sure if this is supposed to be, whose story this is supposed to be. Sure, I can definitely see that. It, it does, I don't want to call it tonal issues. I felt that this movie had some pacing issues while watching it, and I can definitely see how you would ask yourself whose story is this, because it it's kind of split right down the middle. Yeah. So... For me, I felt it. this is really Danny's journey. Did, did I say journey? Hey, dude, don't blow your load. Not yet. But I do feel that this, this movie is really Danny's journey start to finish, but also kind of an origin movie for Abra, who I feel like they're almost setting up to go on to do something else in either another book or another movie that they're building her up to be this big character. So it was like an introduction to her, but an origin and a finish for Danny. So Cliff Curtis, he plays Billy, Billy Freeman. I had a hard time trying to figure out where I knew him from, and I had to go look it up. And he, do you, do you remember his face in another movie anywhere else? The Meg. Die Hard, uh, Live Free and Die and the, Hard. He was in Live Free and Die Hard, yeah. That, Is that what you were thinking of? No. Oh. Um... He's been in a lot of stuff. Yes, he I've has. seen him in, in a few yeah. things. I can't recall which ones. He is. He took me back to because the way he looked, he took me back to. He's training day, and they have the shotgun on Ethan Hawke there in the in the tub. Yeah, and he is the guy holding the shotgun, and all of a sudden he realizes that this guy has saved his niece from being raped. Right, Cliff Curtis, man, I really liked him in this. I, uh, he was solid. And I broke my heart. Broke you, my heart. You knew, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. So Michael Flanagan, he directed this. I w- have not been familiar with this guy before. And I uh, am pleasantly surprised that some of the things that uh, he has done before are things that I haven't seen, but I have heard good things about. In particular, he is responsible for uh, Midnight Mass. The wife speaks very highly of this show. And then uh, before that, he also did Dr. Sleep. The year before that, he did The Haunting of Hill House. And then in 2017, he also did Gerard, uh, Gerald's Game. And these movies, uh, these series, Midnight Mass, Haunting of Hill House, and the movie Gerald's Game, he uses the same cinematographer and the same music uh, uh, people, uh, the Newton brothers. And so 
he has this troupe that he really likes to work with, which coincidentally also uh, reflects in the cast. He has a reoccurring uh, people that follow him around. Probably the, the strongest one that followed him around, which I was really surprised about, is Henry Thomas. He, he's, he's been in a lot of uh, Mike Flanagan's product projects. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, the whole group, the True Knot, with the exception of Crow Daddy, all of those other characters have been in other productions of his. Oh well, yeah. he, even his son, I think, is one of the uh, True Knot. Oh, is he? Yep. Yeah. One of the things I read that Mike Flanagan is famous for, and he gets pulled into these movies for, is for his ability to really get you with the jump scare. Was there any points that you would call in this movie that you kind of jumped out of your seat a little bit? No, no, I didn't have any. I actually wrote down one for me, which was when they do the flashback to Jack and the axe on the door. I didn't see that coming and it did freak me out for a sec. Oh, did it? It made me jump. So I I was pretty proud that he got me with a jump scare. Nice. So I just want to talk a sec about the shine. Um, Did you guys, either of you get kind of vibes of like force Star Wars type elements in this whole shine thing? If you really thought about it, then yeah, you could. Because, I mean, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just thought it was interesting that, you know, there's a kind of a light side and a dark side. You got good shine users. You got bad shine users. In Star Wars, it's either, you know, you're very, you're a pacifist or you're angry and you go north toward the dark side. In this movie, the supernatural abilities are from fear pain and trauma it can be enhanced with that and you've basically got the people who have the shine and the people who seem to feed on the shine things like that one of the interesting things i read is how much the shine has appeared in other stephen king books with other characters Uh, for example in the stand mother abigail was quoted as saying prophecy is a gift of god and everyone has a smidge of it my own grandmother used to call it the shining lamp of God, sometimes just the shine. So going back and looking through his various books, you can kind of think of it this way, you know, being the idea of trauma and fear really either brings it out or enhances it. You got Johnny Smith from the dead zone. Um, he had head trauma, and then all of a sudden he's clairvoyant and can see the future. You got John Coffey, from the Green Mile, who's able to heal people. You got Charlie with, you know, her pyrokinetic ability in the Firestarter. Her father was also referred to as a pusher. So maybe either they had artificially enhanced shine or just artificial shine. You got Danny from The Shining and Dr. Sleep. You got Ellie Creed from Pet Cemetery, who's able to speak to people in her dreams. And then I thought this was interesting, talking about the Losers Club in It!, Uh, It is actually mentioned, I believe Stephen King has even talked about this in an interview, that each one of them in the Losers Club had some degree of shine and was one of the reasons why Penny Rise was drawn to them. So there's an example where Bill and Beverly communicate telepathically through the ritual of Chud. Uh, Stephen King points out that as they're actually using the shine to do that. I love how Stephen King, you know, uses that in his entire shared universe. Is it trivia time? Well, I got the questions if you got the time. In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, 
I have prepared a series of questions related to the movie we are reviewing this episode. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. In 1980, what did Violet say she was leaving the camper to go do? Look for flowers. Oh, fuck. I think that's it. I'll give it to you. It was pick some flowers. Yeah. He's going to give it to you. What number is on the door that young Danny stops at in the Outlook Hotel? 237. Same one it was in the first movie? Yep, 237. What number ball does Danny grab during his bar fight? Uh, The A9 ball. You have a guess, Professor? Six. It was the number 13. 13. 13's also orange. Six and 13 are orange. Oh, well. What movie is Andy watching in the movie theater? Casablanca. Very good, Professor. At Abra's party, what utensil is all over the ceiling? Spoons. Very good. What is the name on the side of Rose the Hat's RV? Annihilator. Rosebud. Winnebago. Vengeance. Oh, yeah, it is. When talking to Andy, how long does Rose say it's been since they offered anyone a deal? 40 years. Yeah, almost 40 years is what she says, so correct. How old does Andy say she is? 15. Very good. How much is the room that Danny is staying at when he gets to Fraser? $85 a week. Yeah, you both get a half point for that. <laughs> what is the name of the cat? Azzy. Azazel. It's Azzy or Azriel. Kind of an interesting thing about the cat we mentioned earlier is if you know who Azriel is, Azriel is the name of the angel of death which is interesting because the cat can predict who's going to die. Now, on set, they had problems with the cat. So do you know what the nickname that Mike Flanagan gave to the cat? Asshole. Little fucker. Asshole was the name of the cat. Oh, fuck. Does he get bonus points for that? I will give him a bonus point. Oh, for fuck's sakes. How old was Dan when his mom died? 20. Yep, very good. And the final question. Finish the phrase. Eat well, blank. Live long and prosper. Very good. I want to actually say, I think you guys tied this round. So that leaves Ken still ahead by one. Congratulations, Ken. Whoop-dee-doo, Basil. Dan Torrance, still traumatized from his family's 1980 ordeal at the Overlook Hotel, is guided by the ghost of Dick Halloran to capture the ghost of the Overlook Hotel in lockboxes. By 2011, he has become an alcoholic to suppress his shining. After moving to a New Hampshire town, he recovers through AA, set up by his new friend Billy Freeman, and becomes a hospice orderly where he uses his shining to comfort dying patients, who nickname him doctor's sleep. Meanwhile, the True Knot, a cult of psychics led by Rose the Hat, extend their lifespans by consuming steam, a psychic essence released by torturing and killing those who have the shining. In 2019, the True Knots are starving as steam has become increasingly rare. They torture a boy to death for steam, a young girl named Abra Stone, whose shining is even greater than Dan's, senses this. She telepathically alerts Dan about the murder, but Rose senses Abra in the process. Rose projects her consciousness across the country and infiltrates Abra's mind, but is physically injured by a psychic trap set by Abra. 
Rose sends the remaining members after her for steam. So, so I want to just, uh, mention one of the big differences between the book version and the movie version that we don't get in this movie version, which is uh, in the book, it's mentioned that after the events of The Shining, uh, Danny and his mom are basically living off of a settlement that they received, a really generous settlement that they received from the Outlook Hotel, from the owners. So that is what Danny is living on this whole time when he becomes an alcoholic and then drinks all the money away. So the movie starts and we get that famous score. Uh, and then we are... It also has a heartbeat in it. There was a lot of heartbeat in a this one. A lot. Yeah, you roll your eyes when you say that, and I'm agreeing with you. There was a lot of heartbeat. Um, but we start with this overhead shot, and we are introduced to Rose the Hat, and she is... It's Florida, 1980, and we're at this little campground, and we follow this little girl down to the waterfront. What did you think of this introduction to Rose the Hat? I pretty much was expecting this. It felt a little bit Frankenstein to me. That's exactly what I thought, too. The Frankenstein's monster is at this waterside when a little girl comes up with some flowers and he ends up drowning her. Yeah, I thought it was a good introduction. I mean, yeah, of course you were expecting it, but I thought it was really creepy how when the little girl would turn and... There's Crow Daddy. All of them, really. And then she turns again, then they're all there. Yeah, and I thought that it was really effective and I felt absolutely horrified for that little girl. So they did a really good job setting up the big bad in this fairly quickly. I thought it was interesting that, you know, they grab her and did she scream or did she not scream? Who knows? Because I'm thinking, wouldn't, she didn't go that far from her campsite, did she? It was a, it was a cut. So, I mean, who who knows how far she really, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, point is she dead. So she's not only dead, she got tortured and, you know, mutilated because that's how they feed on that steam. Yeah, but we don't know that yet. So going back and watching it again, you're like, oh, man. (laughs) Next, we are at the Overlake Hotel, and we're cruising around with Danny on his little trike again. So let's just get this out of the way real quick. Throughout this entire film, we keep cutting back to scenes from the original movie, and the director made the conscious choice to actually reshoot this stuff. So taking all of that into account, what did you guys think of the shining bits, starting with this one? He even uh, he even went a step further, and he contacted uh, the you know Kubrick family to get a hold of the original blueprints for the Outlook Hotel, so that he could rebuild all those scenes the way they were from the movie. So I thought that was really impressive, and just seeing that old carpeting uh, brought back memories of the original movie. So you like those scenes? I didn't mind them. I thought that the way he did it, the way he reshot them, even though it had different people. It felt very familiar, or familiar, and it worked. And you were okay with the people that he got? Yeah. Okay. What about you? I didn't mind that they had different actors as opposed to using the original, uh, having the original uh, clips from The Shining. I, I was fine with having them recreate actors. I thought it was a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it pays respect to the Kubrick, and, you know, it gives us something fresh. And I thought that the people that they got, uh, the gal they got to play Wendy, the little kid they got to play Danny, and Henry Thomas, who they got to play Jack, I thought they all did a really good job. Did you know that Henry Thomas had to shave his head? No, I didn't know that. For the wig to fit right, to look like that Jack Nicholson character, to look like Jack Torrance, he had to shave his head. Well, I I just wanted to point out that 
all of a sudden we realize that as the as the the shrivelly old lady comes at him, he wakes up and it's just a nightmare. And then he gets up, and then when he gets up, there she is again in the bathroom. And we don't see her necessarily, but we know that it's her. And he suddenly backs out, and then there's mom right there by his side. What are you doing out here? Why are you out here? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't this also where he pees himself? Yes. Yep. yep. Clearly, this kid is traumatized. Yeah. You know, he's got a gift that he didn't ask for, and he doesn't know how to use it. Well, worse even, he thought, you know, when leaving the Outlook, you're leaving it all behind. But no, these ghosts are following him no matter where he goes. Yeah. Yeah. They're his memories. And so. then I, I really uh, thought that it was uh, very comforting to have Dick Holleran come back into his life and continue to talk to him. Even though he's already passed on, he can sit and have conversations with Danny. That I thought that was a really interesting piece to put into the story arc so he can help Danny with his shine. Right. And it's giving us more information about the ability, which I guess you could say was kind of glossed over in The Shining. But, you know, we're getting a little bit more information. And I thought it was a nice touch bringing Dick Halloran back too, kind of as his guide. I mean, his like shine ghost, you know, like a force ghost. If you have to look at it that way, yeah, you could definitely make the comparison. Mm-hmm. Um but I thought that the conversation that they have on the park bench was very touching. And I thought that when Halloran says, um, shows him the box. Yeah. This is how you, this is how I deal with it. Maybe it'll work for you. You know, smell it, touch it, feel it. Yeah. And so one of the things that they bring up is that people who have the shine, especially more powerful people with the shine usually have some kind of specific ability, uh, where they excel at. And for Danny, we find out that he can talk to the, the ghosts, he can talk to supernatural people, and they're drawn to him. Uh, one of the interesting things, and I don't know if it's brought up here or brought up later by Dick, but there is a little bit of foreshadowing where he mentions, he basically just spells things out saying, you know, I, uh, I'm going to help guide you like someday you're going to help guide someone else. Yeah. Back at home, they are watching television, and then all of a sudden, Danny looks down the hallway, gets up, goes straight to the bathroom. We see the woman in the tub, and he closes the bathroom door. And then the next shot you got is we are in the Outlook maze in the snow at night, and we see the the, the chest, the box, that is quite similar to the one that Dick has showed, had showed him earlier. And then he comes out from the bathroom and he sits down with his mom. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And he says something. This is the first time he's talked. Right. Outlook flash forward to New Jersey, 2011. And we see Dan has not aged very well, very gracefully. Yeah. And he wakes up from a night of debauchery. One night stand. Probably. And what'd you guys think of this whole bit? Him being drunk, Dan and trying to get out of the house. We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah, you turn around and there's this kid in the fucking hallway. I felt like this was supposed to represent his lowest point, his lowest moment. We're witnessing, obviously, he had a really violent fight the night before. I mean, beat the heck out of a guy with a pool ball. Uh, and now he's stealing money from a mother of a you know a little baby. Whoa, 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 whoa. She stole his money first. He did. He didn't see it, and doesn't Dick bring that up? You didn't see her do that. Well, no, he doesn't do bring th- it up. He just tells her, "Don't." The, don't. Well, where do you think she bought the drugs from? Well, he, yeah, that's what he says. Dick just says, "Don't, don't steal from her, Doc." Yeah, you know, getting into his conscience. But I thought it was important that that Dick Holleran was there 
at this time in his grown up life, which shows us that he's probably been hanging around more or less with Dan trying to keep him from doing terrible things. Yeah. I, I had to wonder how long had Dick been hanging around that night and what was he exactly watching? Well, you know, that's what the dead do, right? They just watch the living. Mm-hmm. So use your imagination. There, yeah, exactly. Guy. So we're introduced to snake bite in the theater, which is, she's just Andy at this point. And we have what Rose the Hat and Crow Daddy sitting a few rows behind, kind of witnessing what looks like an older gentleman trying to get with a young girl that he met online. Yeah. Is that what you, the impression that you got? He's a perv. Yeah. Well, no, well, you know, that's what was happening. Yeah. You know, so, but uh, she has this special power. She's a pusher. She can push. And she makes him pay. And I like how uh, Crow Daddy's like, uh, this is my favorite part. Watch this or this. And Rose doesn't seem too impressed at first, but then her interest really peaks. And they don't want to kill her. They want her to join the true knot because they haven't had a pusher in a while. And then after that, we are introduced to Abra. Aniston, New Hampshire. And she's just a little one, and it's did, her birthday. Did you get right away that Abra was short for Abracadabra? No, I did not. It wasn't until close to the end of the movie, the first time I watched it, it hit me. I was like, oh. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. A lot of times in these movies, you know, kids have these abilities, and they hide the abilities. This one, the parents knew right off that she was special and had these abilities. You're right. Usually the little kid or the whoever has to hide it, but now it's out in the open. Mm-hmm. So I really dug seeing all those spoons upon the ceiling. What the fuck? I know, right? Abracadabra. She's because she told that fucker, I can do that too. And that little fucker is like, good for you, honey. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? I knew all those spoons were going to drop when the parents were looking at her. Oh, yeah, for sure. Scare well, the shit out of her. When I was younger, my dad took me to a magic show in Vegas and we sat up in the front row and the magician eventually stopped the show to tell me to shut up. Because every time he would do a trick, I would say, oh, this is how he did it. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Why does that not surprise me at all? Classic John. Classic John. And so... Uh, we are now in Fraser, New Hampshire. Because Danny needs a change of scenery. And this is where he gets off the bus and he goes to the park. Or he's he's just kind of wandering, aimlessly wandering. Yeah. Do and you this, think the shine led him there like he was supposed to be there? Who knows? When he gets off, though... More heartbeat. Uh, But this is where we meet Billy. And do you think Billy had the shine? Because he has a sense about people. Stephen King actually says everybody in his stories has a little portion of the shine, whether or not they can use it or not. Billy probably did have a little bit of shine to be able to read people. Well, it's mentioned during the movie that there are lots of people that have no idea that they probably have a little bit of shine in them. Mm -hmm. And so they call it good luck. Hey, man, call it whatever you need to. I do. Right away, you get to see how Billy's a good person, how he really takes, you know, Danny under his wing and tries to take care of him. And and I like this. I like this relationship. I like this camaraderie between the two because you're right. Billy genuinely wants to help Dan. You know what I mean? And Danny's at that point where he needs the help. And he even does it after he gets him a place to stay and he's upstairs and he, he goes down to Billy's and he knocks on the door and he opens it up and he says, I need help. And so uh, he goes to an AA meeting and uh, this is where one of the doctors, uh, Dr. John, more heartbeat. 
And uh, Dan gets up and talks and does the whole AA thing and and he shakes the doc's hand and then he goes to tell him. I thought this was an interesting bit. He goes to tell him about his watch. Where his watch is. Yeah. And the doctor's like, what the fuck? Right. And then we cut to kind of like an interview uh, process and mainly because, well, he found the fucking watch and it was there. Uh, did you notice what room he was in? I did not notice that. I read about it later, but I did not notice that. That was the first thing that stuck out to me. You know what it was? It was the fucking uh, window behind the oh, dock. Okay. It looked so familiar to me, but I, same as Professor, I had to read about it. So, oh, well, really? Tell yeah. the listeners. Yeah. It's the same office that Jack Nicholson was in in The Shining when yeah. he was in for the interview. Yep. In the meantime, we get to watch this little uh, ritual happen for Snakebite Andy where she is given the, uh, the steam of our little Violet from the beginning of the movie. I had to rewind it because I wasn't I wasn't sure if I heard uh, Rosa Hat say this one was called Violet, and that just kind of creeped it up just a little bit more. She didn't say that it was from Violet, but she says it smells like violets. Yeah, well, I mean, come and, on. And Could the, it be any more clear? It, yeah, pretty much. So one, one thing I didn't catch in that part, but I did catch in later parts, is that Rose the Hat's costume was supposed to have elements of all the kids that she's killed. They're supposed to be like worked into her things like bracelets and little things like that. And then if you notice later on in the movie, they even kind of reference this, is that the vials that they keep the steam in or little canisters to keep the steam on all have something connected to it that's related to the person that they killed. So I was looking for that. Was there any like violence or flowers connected to... The canister that she was using for Violet? The only canisters I thought that didn't look normal, I guess, was when she opens up the cabinet. There was like three on top that had stuff hanging from them. Yeah, one of them had a Weebelows kind of Cub Scout. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever on. it was. But all the other ones down below, I didn't notice if they had a they trinket didn't. on it. There were seven down below, and they didn't have anything. So, man, and I'm not sure if Violet's had a trinket on it or not. Yeah. But uh, they open it up, and I mean, come on. It's just, a, they're just another version of a vampire, mm-hmm. right? She yep. had to die yep. to become alive. Right. And so Andy is part of the true knot. And she even gets her name, Snakebite Andy. Yeah. We also have this moment where Dan wakes up from a nightmare and there are flies come to find out that it's the gal that he had that one night stand with suddenly in bed with him. And then in between them is also the little boy. <laughs> The, the, the little boy that, you know, he gave the Cheetos to or whoever that was. I don't know why that was put in there. Curious thing. But, you know, talking about the uh, the bit about the flies that comes up at the end of the movie, I thought maybe it had something to do with that. But still, why would mother and son be dead? I don't know. I, I had a theory on that. My theory is that it, so much time has gone by that maybe that mother has OD'd and the kid ended up dying for whatever reason. And like we said earlier, like I said earlier, the supernatural are drawn to Danny. So he is seeing these, these supernatural mother and baby. And it's his conscience. And I yeah. think, I think his conscience has a lot to do with that too. But you do bring up a good point with the flies. Uh, and I think they are referred to as death flies because she, he brings it up later on talking about his at mother the, at the end. Uh, and this is another thing that connects us to the green mile in that these are supposed to be represented by the same flies that come out of John's mouth. We have a moment now where it's at night at the uh, facility where Dan is working and we watch Ozzy the cat run up to a door and pushes his way inside and we get our first introduction to Dr. Sleep. It was a very tender moment. 
and I thought they did it really well. And, you know, it, it kind of makes you think a little yeah. bit. I, you know, I thought at first, you know, every time he went into somebody's room, oh my God, this is going to be slow. This is a scene that's not needed. But I agree with you, Don. They were very touching moments and it almost feels felt like gave you the impression Danny has found where he's supposed to be and, and he's found what he's supposed to do. And I, I'm glad that you said that because we got that from this scene. Yeah. I don't think we needed to keep going back there. And I'm with you, professor. I think this movie is probably 20, 25 minutes too long. He gets back home and we hear the heartbeat start up. And I knew the moment that we have the landlady showing the chalkboard wall, oh, this is going to be a communication device for sure. And absolutely, he comes in and he looks, hello. Yep. And he writes back, hi. Did you get the connection between Danny and Abra? You're going to have to refer it. What do you mean, did I get the connection? Well, why were they connected? Uh, later on in the movie, she refers to him as Uncle Danny. She tells him, just pretend to be my uncle. Uh, in the book version, it is revealed that one of the reasons why they can communicate between each other so easily is because Jack, uh, Danny's father, had an affair with Abra's grandmother. And Abra actually is related to Danny. He really is her uncle. Cool. So that's just another one of those little book references that they kind of left out. But he, you know, Flanagan worked it back in by that scene later on. Gotcha. Flash forward, it is eight years later. You know, we have eight years of Dan, you know, more or less turning his life around and, and leading a kind of sort of a, a happy, quiet little life. Yeah. And we also have probably at the same time the true knot continuing on being the true knot. Yeah, absolutely. And Dan's getting his eight-year sobriety chip, and he kind of gives it up to his dad and this, that, and the other. And when he comes back to the his room, Abra has said hi again. Morning. Yeah, yeah. And he even referenced, he goes, wow, it, I haven't heard from you in a while, pen pal. He says, been a minute, little pen pal. And then he writes back on the board, school, with a little smiley face inside. Right. Yeah, get to school, get so, to school. That kind of gives you impression, too, that they have talked a lot, though, because he knows her schedule. He knows that she, you know, is a young girl. He knows that uh, she's obviously late for school. During this time, we are also exposed to a serious issue that is happening with Rose the Hat and Crow Daddy, that there is a dwindling supply of steam for them, and everybody is getting hungry. Yeah, it's... The steam is depleting. Yeah, the world is a little less bright. Right. They blame it on cell phones, Netflix, drugs. You know, they blame it on everything. And, you know, as the world evolves and crumbles, so does the steam. And so there's a real concern going on in the true knot. So they're constantly looking, you know, and they're looking for someone who has the good steam. And this brings us to, I would probably have to say, this is probably one of the most disturbing scenes I've seen in a movie in a long time. And I'll even throw it up there with that splitting scene of Bone Tomahawk. And it's not because it's overtly graphic. It's because of the way it's played, the dialogue, the shot selection. And I'm going to give it up to that little fucking kid. It that little kid can fucking kid. act. You know what I mean? It is, I think, horrifying. Well, so did the cast, apparently. Rebecca Ferguson even said that the entire cast during that scene, that filming scene, was traumatized about oh. what they did with the boy. And... 
I haven't seen the extended version, but they add like five minutes to that scene in the extended version. I can't imagine why. Yeah, they said that after the first take was done, all of the cast, they're kind of sort of like, holy shit. But he just jumps right up. His dad gives him a high five, good job. And he goes running off to a snack table to grab some snacks. But he's all perky and happy. And everybody else is like, holy shit. And I would probably be just like his dad if that was my kid and pulled that off. Fucking high five. So there's this little kid. He's a baseball player. And Crow Daddy's watching him. And, you know, these two dads are talking. And he goes, this kid gets a hit. He can read his mind. So he has the shine. But I think... The first question that I had, even watching it the first time, was what kind of parents make him walk all that way? And That was a big, long road. And there was cornfields. I mean, there was nothing there. Yeah. And, and how come no other team parent could give him a ride home? Yeah, what's up with that? See, now I'm just getting angry because I know what happens to the fucking kid. Well, why wasn't his parents at the game? Why wasn't his parent? Okay, well, that one I can understand. But still, why not arrange for this kid to get home? I don't know why. I remember the first time I watched this movie and the van door opened up as the kid's walking. And the kid's like, no, I'm fine. I'll, I'll walk. And the van opens up the door and you see Andy. And she's like, get in the car. And I thought, oh, well, he just thought she was cute and got in the car. I didn't get right away that she pushed him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that's that was her job. So... We know, as the audience, nothing good is going to happen. I honestly, in the first time I watched this, I was kind of ex- expecting some kind of, you know, Andy's character was going to turn on them or Andy's character was going to have a come-to-God kind of moment where she was going to come back to the light side and maybe they were building a kind of a third storyline based around Andy. No, Andy turned out to be a real bitch. Yeah, I don't know what movie you were watching, but yeah. She was irredeemable from the start, I guess. It, Pretty yeah. much, yeah. So I guess it's a ritual, right? And they pin this kid down, and Rose the Hat says, uh, the more scared you are and the more pain you have, the more pure the steam is. So they're mainlining yeah. steam. The kid, the kid asks, are you going to hurt me? And she's and, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's very upfront with him, which I think makes it even more horrifying well here's something to think about and rose uh rebecca ferguson talked about her character and her costume and everything did you notice that there was a big hat pin in her hat no no according to her the usefulness of for rose the hat was she takes it out and she puts it under the fingernails of little children to cause them even more pain during that whole steam process yeah awesome so there was even more like thought out about how to torture these kids Okay. Yeah, thank you for not showing us, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I am still a firm believer of less is more, and just the just the little blood spurts that would show up on him. And I think what really sells it is after he's dead, they have to push on him Oh, yeah. to get the remaining steam. Oh, so morbid. But while they're torturing this kid, somehow it contacts Abra. And so Rose the Hat senses it, and she's telling Crow Daddy as they're burying the body, there was something out there. Something There's somebody big. watching us. And then Dan wakes up. He's no. a, he's awakened because of the shattering of the, of the chalkboard. There goes his deposit, right? Probably. And red rum, right? Why does Abra turn the R backward? I thought the same thing because at first, you know, we get it in the mirror that we see red rum. Then when they show it murder, you're right. The R is backwards, but maybe she pulled that from Dan's mind. She had to have. That's the only thing I could think of. She had to. She pulled it from a memory from his. So Dan responds with Abra, to Abra's message with "Hope you're okay, your friend Dan." B. 
Because he asks who was murdered, and she says, baseball boy. And right. it kind of weighs on him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Abra goes downstairs the next morning. Hey, Mom, guess what? I made a new friend. And then we have that little reveal from Mother where she says, I know that your head of yours is like a radio station. And with that, we are exposed to a little bit of that radio station as she's sitting in school, filtering through all the different little comments that her classmates around her are making as she's cruising the internet looking for Baseball Boy. Abra finds Baseball Boy as as a missing kid. And the heartbeat starts up again. And then we get that damn heartbeat again. And then she's able to flash and see the last uh, several moments of things that were happening around that time of his death. And she's able to see the sign on the road. She's able to see faces. She's able to see the suffering that baseball boy is uh, being tortured with. And eventually she's able to land where Rose is standing. Well, she also, I think the big clue, doesn't she also see that one of the true knot, and I can't remember what his name is, is playing with the baseball mitt? Well, that's certainly one thing that's that's in, in the flash sequence yeah. that she's looking at, but it's not brought up until later when she's speaking to Dan. Yeah, because that ends up being the big thing that she uses to track them. Right. This is where Rose is in the grocery store. Yes. And Abra makes contact. And Rose kind of gets a taste of the power and how powerful Abra is. And then we get that that hand reaching around to the back of Abra's head. Yeah. And then it's like, get out of my head! Yeah. I really appreciated this part because we're almost led to believe that, you know, Rose is going to be our most powerful character in this movie. And even Rose is like, she is way more powerful than I am. Yeah, no, and I like that. I like that uh, Abra gets the best of her a lot in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nice little nice little change. Uh, did you guys happen to notice uh, Abra's house number? No. I did not notice it, but it was another thing I read. What was special about it? It's 1980. Yeah. The year The Shining was made. So after the... the- the uh, the link is severed. Not only does Rose and Abra have a bloody nose, but also Dan gets a bloody nose as well. And he's freaked out and he asks Tony for help. Apparently Tony uh, plays a bigger part in the book in that both Abra and Danny talk to Tony. So I thought it was interesting that they kind of left that out as much as they did in the book or in the movie. Yeah, well, they had to leave a lot out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So... Rose comes back to camp and she is seriously freaked out because of this incident that she has just had, that she just experienced with Abra. And I don't think she's experienced any any challenge like this in a really long time. Well, I got the impression at first she's excited about it because she doesn't really think at this point that Abra is going to be much of a challenge, just that she's a powerful shine, that she's going to produce a lot of steam in that now she's excited. It's not until their second meeting that Rose is really rattled. Yeah, but we have Crow Daddy, you know, do we turn her or is she food? You know, which one is she going to be? And, you know, she definitely did not want to try to turn her. No, she was going to be too powerful. Yeah. So, yeah, they wanted to keep her and torture and get all the steam out of her. And so uh, Abra communicates with Dan and says... uh, She she finds him sort of GPS-wise. And she shows up, you know, and this is the bit where they sit down and have a conversation, and he goes, I like how they acknowledge that in today's world, a grown-ass guy talking to a little girl is going to raise flags. And she says, well, you're my Uncle Dan. Smart thinking. 
And then she gives Dan the information about the baseball boy and says, if you get me the mitt, then I can track him. I do appreciate, too, that we're still at the point with Dan that he's not ready to accept you know, his place in this world and that he tells her, go home, hide your shine, and basically duck your head. And so uh, he tells her they're going to come back. And this is the bit where uh, Rose turns into Superman and flies. This is one of those bits where I don't know. Astral projection. Yeah, but uh, did we need to see her go from point A to point B? I felt it was more like a Google Maps thing in that, you know, when we see Rose flying, this is her basically pinpointing Abra's location, not just showing up and not knowing how she got there or where they are. She's actually seeing a navigational path all the way to Abra's house so they can show up. Yeah, we as the audience don't need that. What prompts Dan into action is he gets a visit from Dick Halloran at the hospital. And when he first shows up, you know, we watched Dan, you know, he put his puts his head down and then we get a brief shot of a row of chests in the snow cover in the snow maze. Yeah. It's just like, oh, look at that, man. He's got a bunch of chests now. And then, oh, it's Dick. And then, oh. Were you going to try to put me into the chest? Well, I, no, I'm sorry. I, yeah, because he was getting ready. Right. And I was like, come on, motherfucker, you're going in. And so with that, th- this is revealed to us that Dan actually has some badassery skills that he is able to, you know, defend himself, if you will, which is going to be an integral part that allows us to believe in him as the story moves forward after this point. Because before this, he's just a scared, timid person that wants nothing to do with his abilities yeah yeah and Halloran says you know they're gonna go after that little girl you got to do something you mm-hmm. can't just stand by and watch this happen yeah, yeah th- they eat screams drink pain and they've noticed that little girl and they might kill her they might turn her or maybe they just keep her till she's all used up and so this is where Dan tells him that he has a debt to pay and he needs to pay it and in the meantime uh Rose the Hat visits Abra, and Rose the Hat thinks that she has the upper hand and... More heartbeat. I don't more know. heartbeat. And you, you think that Rose is really going to yeah. you know, do something. She's being so crafty because she's so smug with herself. Yeah, I but love- this is one of those moments that you were saying that they turned it. Yeah. Well, I love the idea that she comes in and she's like, she goes up to the card catalog that she's going to start going through Abra's thing. And she's like, you know, mine is like, you know, a cathedral. My, you know, mine's all huge. And you're right. All of a sudden Abra turns around and they're in the cathedral. And Abra's actually going through her memories. Yeah. So Abra set a trap for Rose. She fell into it. And now Abra has been inside Rose's head. And then when Rose is able to escape... She falls off the fucking camper. She flies off that camper. And Crow Daddy's like, what the fuck? And she's like, she got in my head. And, and now he's and now Crow Daddy is very concerned. And did you notice like her, you know, her hand gets all beat up in the mindscape sequence. And then in the real world, it is torn up. Like the skin is torn off it. So that it looks like she was that being shows you it's the second time it really shows you that what happens in this mindscape or what happens between them also happens in the physical world. Yeah, I mean, it's just like Nightmare on Elm Street. You die in your dreams, you die in real life. Chuck it up to that. There was something I didn't catch the first time I watched it, so I had to look for it the second time. Uh, But when we were in Abra's house, uh, apparently on the refrigerator is a drawing of a rose, and on a shelf above Abra's bed, there's a rose and her toys spell out the word hat. 
So I guess this was another couple of examples that uh, Flanagan put in there as foreshadowing of Rose the Hat coming to the house. Huh. There you go. We have a scene now where Grandpa Flick is passing, and this freaks out Snakebite Andy because, hey, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to live forever. No, I said that we would live a long time. But it was interesting listening to his history that Rose was going through. He's been around for a long fucking time. Holy shit. Since the Romans, I think. I like who she said, uh, you feasted on kings, queens, and princes, and all that. So the true knot's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Which makes me wonder how or why was he with her, which is what I think is a shortcoming of the movie, is we don't really understand the abilities of the rest of the group. And we sort of see the abilities of Rose, sort of, and we have experienced Snakebite Andy's push. But other than that, you know, we know that Crow Daddy seems to be some sort of a tracker of some sort. We don't know how or, or, or what his little technique is, but the rest of them, we know nothing about their abilities. Apparently it's spelled out more in the book. Obviously. Yeah, which a couple things that they, they show you is, first of all, each person is almost dressed in a garb that's supposed to represent the time period that they came from. And you're right. Each person has a special ability with the shine that makes them an asset to the team. Clearly. I I got the impression that maybe Flick, uh, Grandpa Flick was the oldest one of that team. And that maybe he's the one who brought Rose the hat into the group. And then Rose eventually became the leader because she was the most powerful. Yeah. Anyway, it was it was I think a shortcoming of the of the movie that we don't have these other characters fleshed out to know what their abilities are because I thought for sure we were going to see something eventually when we have Dan confronting all of these other people. What is he going to have to be confronting? I didn't care because we the true knot to me was Rose that and Crow Daddy. I knew that everyone else had an ability. They brought in Andy for a very specific reason, and they showed us whatever. It's fine. And the way they have that confrontation later, I really appreciate it because it was it was just more stuff that we didn't need. Even though I really enjoyed it, it was it was just a lot. And it was yes, it was. This content was kind of overfilling and kind of drug in a lot of places. And I think by us having to know what all the other abilities were, it did, didn't matter to me. I, so, I, I totally get that and because it doesn't propel the story forward in any way. Well, one of, one of All the, we need to know is that the true knot and they need the steam. Yeah. Th- th- that's how I see it. One of the biggest things I got from the scene was exactly what is said, which is they're not immortal. They can die. And they do have weaknesses in the fact that we see Flick die. And I thought it was an interesting way. I mean, they kind of had him. I don't know. He was kind of like changing into a corpse-looking thing every so often, like it was weird splurts all over the place. Yeah, kind of like when sunlight hits a vampire. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird, but I thought it was so interesting. They're all so sad that he's passing. For about five seconds. And when he turns into the steam, what do they all do? (laughs) They just boof, right? I mean, yeah, that overhead shot. Holy shit, yes! But, But you knew it was coming. I, I, you had to know yes, it was coming. Yes. I thought it was like when they put the crab legs out at the buffet in Vegas. Oh, there you go. And so now, because uh, because Halloran said you got to help her, Doc, uh, Dan decides to go check on the little kid, and he enlists the help of Billy. And what a good fucking friend. You know, in the middle of the night, they get in the car, and they drive off. And what I appreciated about this whole thing was 
As soon as Billy opens the door, Dan says, I need your help, but before I ask you for help, I need to tell you this story, and I need you to try and believe me? And then that takes a lot, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And even when they're driving and Dan is talking to Abra and Billy's kind of looking at him like, what the fuck? I, I thought well, that was kind of Well, he was Blake. sleeping and he only woke up because Abra pushed Dan and he swerved the car. Right, but maybe I meant when they were coming back. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, so, And then <laughs> Abra, what are all those boxes? Oh, stay out of In there. The head, yeah. yeah, stay out of there. So they find the kid and they... Dig him up, and I don't know. This scene was kind of disturbing as well. Well, this was kind of, I think, Billy's big dialogue moment when he's telling the story of being a hunter and why he's not a hunter anymore. Because of the smell of death. Because of the smell. And he's like, and this is what I smell right now. And I like how Billy says, uh, if you're wrong, then you're just crazy. But that I can deal with. That I can, you know, get my, I can wrap my head around. But if you're right, Dan says, it's way worse. And it really is. In the meantime. There should have been a counter, right? Oh, jeez. Yeah. And now Billy's accepted that Abra is just around, even though he can't see her, because Dan just, he's talking to her openly now, right? Uh, she said, turn down this road. And just, she'll tell us when to stop. Yeah. And uh, even they even threw in the bit where he says, uh, you shouldn't see this. You should go home. And <laughs> Billy's like, the fuck are you talking about? You're my ride. And he's all, I wasn't talking to you. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we see Crow Daddy and the group, they're heading out to find Abra. Because Rose the Hat knows where but, she is. But it's interesting how, too, Crow Daddy basically says, Rose, you can't go because she can sense you. She'll see you coming. They haven't figured out yet that Abra is like one step ahead of them, No, you know, going after that mitt because... She doesn't need to go after Rose. She can track them via the mitt. I never felt that Abra was once a damsel in distress. I thought she no. had her shit together. Yeah. And she has to convince Dan, you know. To be. It's okay. I got this type of a deal. Yeah. and But they learn to trust each other in the next upcoming scenes. And I really dug well, that. Well, the twist that I got from King with this one is that, yeah, this true knot is supposed to be the scary, you know, psychic vampires. But it's almost like Abra's the one that they should be afraid of. Because oh, she's yeah. going to fuck their shit up. Oh, yeah. Abra informs Dan about the true knot. Although he is initially skeptical about stopping them, he changes his mind and recruits Billy and Abra's father, Dave, to help. They successfully kill most of the group except Rose, but Billy and Dave are killed and Abra is captured by Rose's partner, Crow Daddy. Dan shines into Abra and saves her from Crow Daddy, killing him in the process. Dan brings Abra to the Overlook as a last resort, believing it will be equally dangerous for Rose. He starts the hotel's boiler and explores the dormant building, awakening it with his shining. At the same time, he has visions of his time at the hotel. Rose arrives at the Overlook and overpowers Dan in a fight, but he saves himself by opening lockboxes in his mind and releasing the Overlook's ghost. Drawn by Rose's power, the ghosts overwhelm and devour her before turning on Danny and possessing him in a bid to try and make him kill Abra. After a brief moment where she cuts through his possessed mind, he tells her to save herself before the hotel overcomes him again. 
He goes to the boiler room, but regains control before the hotel can make him deactivate it. Before he passes out, Dan sees a vision of himself as a child being comforted by his mother, Wendy. Aber escapes as the Overlook burns down and the authorities arrive. Sometime later, Abra speaks to Dan's spirit, assuring him that she is fine. Dan comforts Abra, telling her to shine on and not to hide her gifts from the world. She shares to her mother that she has been conversing with Dan and her deceased father and that they are okay. Abra later encounters Mrs. Massey, the ghost of the bathroom in the Overlook's room 237, in her bathtub. She confronts it and closes the door behind her. Roll credits. So I think this is kind of where the movie picks up and slows down at the same time, if that's possible. It's also where we get the big gut punch. Yeah. Abra knows that the true knot's coming for her. And Dan is like, all right, enough shit. You need to tell your parents. You need to get them involved, which I thought was really smart of him. Because in a lot of movies, we leave the parents out of it. Yep. You know what I mean? And so, you know, the dad reacts how the dad's going to react. He comes outside and he's like, what the fuck are you doing with my daughter, this, that, and the other? And Dan says, I told you to show him. And she says, well, I told him. And you can you can see Dan going, that's not the fucking same thing <laughs> right before he gets hit, right? But Abra shows her dad what she can do. And obviously he's freaked out. But at least now he's on the side and now they need to come up with a plan. And Dan has a plan. He's going to try a trick. And I like when Abra says, you mean magic? And she gets that smile on her face. And then she gets the baseball glove. And then so interesting to be plopped into the middle of their vehicle. She's riding with them right now and she's surrounded by them. It's interesting that, I mean, I guess maybe it's because Rose isn't there, but none of them could even sense her. Not even Crow Daddy, who's supposed to be this tracker, could sense that she was there watching them. Yeah, no, I mean, that's how powerful Abra is, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's how I took it. And she figures out where they are, and so she knows that they're coming. Mm -hmm. This is one of the bits that I kind of had a problem with as a father. If I know that these freaks are coming, why am I, why are we still at the house? She can astro project from anywhere in the world, right? Why are we not at a Holiday Inn or a Hilton Inn or something, right? And, And why isn't dad more prepared? Yeah, so... Anyways, that's just one of my little gripes. Well, well, my question, too, is if maybe when she's actually projecting, she can't sense what's going on around her. But why wasn't she a better protector of her own father? Uh, Come on, man. You're asking this little girl to do a lot. She's astro projecting over here. She's making the true not uh, believe that she's real. I mean, this little girl's got a lot on her plate. What do you think of the scene with Billy and Danny just offing each of the true not members. I really enjoyed this scene because there were so many of the true not during this whole movie. I'm trying to think how are these two, maybe three Billy outnumbered like this going to take on all of these people. Right. But what they came up with was brilliant. I did like it that if you shoot the true not, they die. And what sold it was every time one of them got shot, it would cut back to Rose and she would feel it. And so she knows She knows she's getting screwed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Annie comes up and says, do you want to sleep? And the astro projection of Abra's like, I want to sleep. And Andy even says, I thought she was supposed to be this big badass thing. And this was super easy. 
And then it turns out she was uh, drugging her poor stuffed animal. So what would you guys think of this whole bait and switch? It was satisfying to, to see them level the playing field so quickly. What I really liked about this scene is, again, we talk about the big twist, the big turnaround, in that usually when you confront, I'm thinking of like the movie The Lost Boys or anything, when you're confronting the big bads, there's a big, you know, bloody battle scene going on where the bad guys fight the good guys. No, I mean... Again, one step ahead of them, and they're dispatching them right and left without them even using their shine powers. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, again, they had, you know, thing until we get this gut punch. Ugh. I, I also enjoyed how everybody with the true knot from the true knot, they all have handguns. Everybody has a gun. Yeah, well, they're, I mean, they're not stupid. And so uh, Andy has the upper hand on Danny, and he fights her. For a little bit, he she's like, go to sleep. And he's like, eh, I'm not sure I want to go to sleep. And then finally it works. But Billy's there and shoots her in the neck. I don't know why he doesn't shoot her in the fucking head. Good call. He sh- it took a long time for that shot to happen, too. And he was just right there. Yes. I have a lot of problems with this scene. Did you? And see- it's just mostly common sense. Yeah. Did you see it coming the first time you saw? No. And as soon as he starts walking up and up and I'm thinking, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Stay back. She's going to do it. She's going to fucking do it. And she says, kill yourself. And the look on Billy's face, he doesn't want to do it, but he doesn't got no choice. And so he blows his fucking head off. Somebody, somebody has to die. I didn't think Billy was going to make it through this story. I really wish he would have because he's not, because he's not, he doesn't have the shine. This isn't really his fight. He's He's an innocent, good, pure person. He's just trying to do the right thing by his friend. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, as this is going on and Rose is freaking out, Abra says the same thing that I thought as soon as this scene started. Where's Crow Daddy, right? Mm -hmm. Crow Daddy killed dad, stole Abra, and now they're on the move. She's all doped up in the van, waking up, and she can't hear or talk to anybody but Crow Daddy in the van. And, and this is a very interesting conversation between these two, I thought. Uh, you know, Abra's kind of giving it back at him, the little attitude, and Crow Daddy's just kind of deflecting it. And then uh, they start talking about the people that died, and Crow Daddy was like, a lot of good people died today, including your people and our people. We also discover here that the shine has a weakness, which is drugs and alcohol and all that. And that's why he keeps her doped up because she can't use her shine when she's doped up. Dan gets back to the house, finds dad dead, sees the bottle of liquor on the counter, and he flees home. And he's got, there's a moment, you know what I mean? And he's, he's got to make a choice. And he he's asking Tony for help again, and he wants to take a drink, but he doesn't. He smashes the bottle and he says, okay, if we're going to fucking do this, let's fucking do it. And he's able to contact Abra because he's he starts, strong too. He starts listening. He yeah, starts he listening. starts listening. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he finds her and then they do this whole astral projection thing again. And I thought it was very interesting uh, that Abra takes on Danny's personality because it's Danny talking. Do you know how they film that? With a camera, I'm guessing. What they did was they had Ewan McGregor uh, film that scene first, doing it all, so she could see how he would act it out and so that she could imitate him. Oh, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. All too quickly, Crow Daddy realizes he's not talking to who he's thinking he's talking to. 
Yeah, he's like, who are you, right? And Dan really shows himself here, right? Because he forces himself to find Abra the way that he does and the fact that he's able to project through her body, you know, another another big skill. And then he, he does a push on Crow Daddy and forcing him to crash into the telephone pole. And I like how he cites arrogance as everyone's downfall because you're so arrogant that you didn't even wear your fucking seatbelt. And so, boom, you know, and then as he goes out the window, Rose really fucking loses it, right? And now... She finds Abra. And now there's one left that we know of. And Rose is standing in the middle of the street. And I thought this was a really good scene. And the fact that Abra just walks right through her like she's nothing shows that she's not afraid. Yep. And I, and I think that's I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I, I was also thinking, fuck, she's got a hell of a walk. All right, bitch child. <laughs> yep, yep. My other thought, too, is Rose is not supposedly not an idiot. Why at this point wouldn't she just write it off and say, you know what? I've just lost my whole group. I'm not going to keep going Fuck after this. her. I'm out, right? Well, I'm going to go a different direction. <laughs> I'm going to disappear. Yeah. So Dan picks up Abra, and, you know, he tells her about her dad, and they have to go on a drive. They're headed to Colorado. Because this this was inevitable. Heartbeat. And with that heartbeat, heartbeat, he tells her, we're going to the Overlook. What'd you guys think of this whole thing? I like the moment during the car where, oh, it's my mom. What are you going to do? She's a dick to her mom. Hi, mom. I love you. Click. Drops the phone out the window. And so they have this plan and they go to the hotel and, you know, I think it's smart of Dan to say, you stay in the car until we get everything going because this hotel's fucked. I like having the, the trip up to the hotel where they're at the gas station and then we have the shining intro music begins and then we get the sweeping camera shots, but they're all now at night. Anyway, I, I thought that that was a really nice touch. And I thought for the most part, a lot of the times the shining nods were really fun. And this was one of them because it's a beautiful shot. And with that score, it's awesome. But this is also the part where I thought it was a bit maybe too much. I mean, how many times do I need to see Danny walk around a corner and explore the hotel? We do this twice because we do it when Rose gets there too. Though I appreciate it, I feel like at times it was a bit much. Absolutely. There was just too much leading up to what I thought was a really interesting scene, which was a scene I really liked, which was uh, Danny sitting down with who we think at the beginning is going to be Lloyd the bartender. Yeah, but it turns out to be his dad. And they have this whole dialogue bit. What did you guys think of Henry Thomas as Jack Nicholson? I thought it was fine. Yeah, I thought they pulled it off. I thought they did a really good job with it. I mean, they got the hair right. They got the mannerisms right, and they got the overall feel of it. So, yeah, I I thought the scene was pretty good. And what I really liked about it is he not only gave off a Jack vibe, Jack Torrance vibe, but he also gave off the same Lloyd the bartender vibe that when Jack was drinking there during The Shining. Oh, sure. And so uh, Rose the Hat arrives. Yep, and they go inside to, uh, to wait for her. And I thought this bit was a little bit anticlimactic. And so now they're on the stairs and this iconic room that we've seen before and the motions and the way the camera moves, very reminiscent, 
But instead of Jack walking up the stairs, it's Rose the Hat walking up the stairs. And uh, Danny has an axe. He's kind of a defender. baseball bat. Yep. And uh, they kind of have it out. And I like the bit where Rose keeps calling him handsome. Did you like, too, the typewriter at the bottom of the stairs? Well, yeah, of course they had to have it. Yeah. I mean, they had everything else. But she keeps calling him handsome and keeps flirting with him. And it, she asks the question, how do we miss you? Yep. I was waiting for Rose to show some sort of uh, terrifying power that she has, but it didn't necessarily reveal itself that way. No, she stabs Danny in the leg. With she, the axe. Yep, and she uses uh, the fear or the pain to start getting steam from him. And I think Danny does this on purpose to bring her in. And then at the last second, right, right. he says, now you get this. Well, what I liked was how Rose was getting into his head and says, oh, you have all these boxes. What's in all these boxes? And I couldn't even tell whether or not she was opening them or he was just saying, take them. No, he, he, he let her in. They're boxes and they're this, that, and the other. But mostly... They're hungry, and so he opens them, yeah. and then everybody comes out. And so that's what I thought, too, when I was saying earlier that they all the ghosts come out, and the first thing they see is Rose being the most powerful. She's the biggest meal, just like you know Rose wanted Abra because she was the biggest meal. They go straight for her. Oh, I figure they went straight for her because she was the, right in front of them. Mm. Dan was already pinned down. So, But because as soon as they're done with her, they turn to him. Yep. Yeah. And so, I was thinking that immediately. It's like, dude, you, you got to leave right now. Yeah, what the fuck are you doing? However, if he's squirting a pint of blood every minute, well, he's not going anywhere but fast. That's a good point. But they didn't feed off of him. They just possessed him. The writing was on the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, it. you knew this was going to happen. And you knew that he was going to chase Abra. And you knew he was going to be going, Abra, like Jack was doing, Danny. I mean, there was a lot of similarities there. I'm just shocked that they weren't out in the snow maze. What did you think of the battle between Abra and Rose in the snow maze? I thought it was fine. A wee bit long. Well, Abra was but, kicking her ass. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, she was there. The, she was the distraction. I was just waiting for the moment where Rose would turn the opposite direction and catch her. Mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So when we finally get Dan catch up to Abra and he, and he's got the ax in his hand, I, I, I was kind of sort of surprised that he was still able to move around just because I figured he was probably dead from, you know, from the, the blood, you know, but maybe he's now he's like a zombie thing or something like that. Oh, sure. As soon as you get possessed, um, all logic goes out the window. And then we get the whole trope of, you know, Dan comes back and tells Abra, you got to run. Love it's okay. Do your thing, but you got to get out of here. And she does. And uh, Dan goes downstairs. Uh, and I like how Abra tells the ghosts, you know, uh, you're inside Dan Torrance. And you don't know Dan Torrance. But Dan Torrance knows this place. And get what was the first thing he did? He righted the wrong from the Kubrick ending (laughs) he turned on the boiler to blow up the hotel or to burn it down and so uh the authorities come luckily or abra probably would have froze out there maybe we fast forward to i was surprised that dan lived he didn't live he's dead he's dead he died he was a force ghost at the end oh he became dick halloran at the end to her i figured he was still around just because he was still talking to her and such oh yeah i didn't take it as a dick halloran thing yeah because i thought there's no way he's getting out of that I took it he was, he was dead. 
the reason why I did that was because when uh, her mom says, who were you talking to? She says, nobody. And then she comes out and she says, no, I, I'm lying. I'm talking to Dan. But she also references her, her dad, dad. Right. And we know that he's dead. Right. So. so that's a good point. Yeah. So the final shot of the lady in the bathtub. I sort of thought that, wait a minute. I thought you were supposed to be consumed by those flames, you know, when the hotel went up. I chalk that up to uh, just showing us one more time that Abra's a badass. That's all I took that as. And so the movie ends. So between the book The Shining and now the book Dr. Sleep, we only need one more book to create a trilogy like my favorite series. What series is that, John? No, 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 no. And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. There are easily two ways I can go with Dr. Sleep this week, either focusing on Danny's journey or Abra's journey. Since then, he has struggled with everything that has happened as well as his own abilities combined with the issues passed on to him from his father. It's the ghost of Dick Halloran who helps guide him along his journey, making Dick our Obi-Wan. I mean, er, I, I mean Gandalf. <laughs> Abra is a tough call. In some ways, she guides Danny. But in other ways, like I stated as well, she is also on a journey. She's protected by Danny, but also tries to protect him in return. Through their correspondence and Shine Connection, I would say Abra closely fits our Samwise. She's probably the person Danny is closest to in the movie and the person who understands him the best, therefore the one that Danny can rely on most. Now, you might think Billy is more of his Sam. I figured Billy was more of a Legolas because just like Legolas sees something in Strider, Billy sees something in Danny. And if you recall from the end of the Hobbit series, Legolas was sent to help guide Strider into accepting who he really was, Aragorn, and preparing him to become the future king. Billy, too, sees something in Danny to get him set up, provide a job, get him into AA, and stand by him throughout his journey. Gimli would be Dave Stone, Abra's father. Initially, he rejects Abra's abilities and Danny himself, but grows to become part of the fellowship, although not happy about it. This makes our fellowship Danny, Dick, Abra, Billy, and Dave. For Gollum, I actually chose the Outlook Resort itself. Now, you may, that may sound weird for me to choose a building as a character, but that's how the Outlook is portrayed in Dr. Sleep. Not as an object, but as an entity. It's mentioned that the Outlook just wants to feed. It craves the precious shine and doesn't care who gets hurt for it to get it. And like Gollum, both died in a fiery inferno at the end. Sauron the White? Well, that would be Crow Daddy. He's the second in charge, and he's the main general for the big boss. The other members of the True Knot? I would say that, that they are the Orcs and the Orkai. Sauron? Well, I picked Rose the Hat. She's the one who leads the baddies in this movie. She only cares about getting what she wants and not about who gets hurt along the way. 
She is the biggest threat to any good shiners in this world. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In Dr. Sleep, the ring is represented by the shine. Anyone who has it basically is put into two categories, the knot or the rubes, the hunted or the hunters. It's an ability that can help, but it's also an ability that can corrupt. Danny uses it to try to help people, but it also damages him throughout his life by the attention that's brought to him. Abra has a great potential with the shine and uses it to battle the evil forces. But as Rose the Hat pointed out, she also has a darkness within her and a potential to become just like Rose. And Rose and her followers were completely corrupted by the shine to the point where they hunt and kill others with it. Much like Sauron and his forces hunt the ring, not caring who they have to kill along the way. And there you have it, my comparison between Dr. Sleep and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What say you, Seth? So what did you say the outlook is? I said the outlook is Gollum. Okay, that's what I had written down. I, I wasn't sure. The ring is the shine. Hmm. C+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, Dick Halloran was Gandalf. C plus. Obi-Wan. I mean, Gandalf. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, good job. I think that uh, a lot of the correlations made sense. I did like the fact that Halloran was Obi-Wan. I mean, Gandalf. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give you a B minus, my man. B minus. Well, thank you, Don. <laughs> and that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, are you ready to rate this flick? Shine on. (laughs) Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody were to say to you, hey, you want to watch Dr. Sleep? Fuck yeah, I do. A one fuck movie is a movie where you see in it, it's one and done. You're never going to see it again because you just have no desire to. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is a movie you get done watching it and you're like, oh, for shit's sake. What the hell was this? Somebody owes me two hours and 32 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Since I was the lucky one to pull this out of the Bronco helmet, I will go first. Dr. Sleep. I enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed the callbacks to the original Shining. I like that they righted the wrong with the ending. I like that they reshot the Shining bits and not used archived footage of the original. I like the way the story went. I felt this movie was kind of oddly paced. Um, I thought that the score was good. That Overlook theme is always impressive. I thought Ewan McGregor did a good job. I thought Rose the Hat did a great job. Uh, That torture scene, like I said, was one of the most disturbing scenes I've seen in a while. Overall, I did like it. I thought it was a good sequel. So I'm giving Dr. Sleep three and a half fucks. All right, three and a half fucks. Fine, I'll go next. Stop staring at me like that. What the heck? You can't feel my shine? He was trying to shine yawn. No, he was pushing. That's what he was doing. You want to go next. I want to go next. So, Dr. Sleep. This is a movie that I had not seen before. So, this is my first time. And 
if it had not come up in the pod, I don't think I ever would have watched this movie. It's just not something on my radar. The uh, Going into the movie, I had some hesitation because it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Man, this better be good, right? Because I got to commit you know, two-and-a-half hours of my time to this. I felt comfortable going into it with uh, Ewan McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson. These two characters that they have in the movie are... Uh, are, are good characters, and I think that they were developed well by Stephen King. The The journey that Dan is on is uh, something that I, I thought was developed well, and I appreciated having him come to terms with his ability to shine by the end of the story and the fact that he was willing to accept that responsibility and to make himself shine brightly for the sake of the, the greater good. The, the greater, greater good. We have Abra. Her character is a uh, compelling character as well. It's disappointing that we have so much screen time between her and Dan because I, I thought that, you know, we have these two characters and, and whose journey, whose story is this supposed to be? And having her in the story as much as she was, it was... It was okay. And what I liked about her and her journey was her, uh, I guess you could say, you know, her, her sense of optimism. She was happy. She was confident. And she certainly seemed to carry herself well with a lot of, uh, I, I don't know how else to say it except for she had this, this confidence, this poise, this moxie that she had, which we didn't necessarily know why she had that poise or moxie but it eventually shows it when she confronts Rose the Hat. The rest of the characters that were underneath Rose, as I stated earlier, I wished I could have had a little bit more about their abilities, but at the same time, since this is a really long-ass movie, I'm thinking there's just not enough time. There was a lot going on in this story, and the first third of the movie, you know, we're jumping all over the place, getting to know what's going on in the lives of Rose and the life of Dan and where he's going with his life. The music, I thought that it was really nice having some of those uh, original Shining pieces uh, thrown in there. There was a fuck ton of heartbeats. I think that we could have cut back on those heartbeats probably a good 50% because it felt like that they were in there every 15, 20 minutes. Now, they're in there because it's supposed to, you know, give us a sense of dread or foreboding. And I I get that, but I felt like that it was overused. And I, I wish that I didn't have as much of that as I did. I never really understood what Rose, what her specific ability is and, and how she is this seemingly immortal person. What was it that she did that kept herself alive all of these years, other than surrounding herself with other people. Once it was down to just her and Dan, and they were confronting each other on the stairs, I was expecting her to do some sort of little voodoo, hoodoo, you know, smoke and mirrors thing, other than just being able to, you know, uh, you know, jump around and look for different people when she chose to do that. That was the only skill that I saw her having. So I was a little crestfallen with her, supposed abilities because it didn't necessarily flesh out for me by the end of the movie. The movie ending the way that it did, uh, I, I was appreciative of that in the fact that 
it, it ends on more or less a, uh, a, a, a happy place that Abra is, is in her life now, despite her father being gone. In the end, I, I think that this is a satisfying watch. I didn't necessarily know what to expect out of it. I expected a lot more uh, jumps or uh, horror-filled moments, and we do have horror-filled moments, but the tension that I watched in The Shining, I felt like was evident through at least three-fourths of the movie, and I didn't feel that tension nearly as much in this movie. But in the end, I'm giving this three and a quarter fucks. Three and a quarter fucks from The Professor. All right there, Rhyme Master Johnson, you're up. Would you rather me wrap it? Oh, God, yes. Please, yes, please. will you? Yes, please. Please? Yes, please. Please? Yes, please. Please? You got to give me a beat. Wait, how about just a heartbeat? And no, I'm not going to wrap it. Before I start, though, you are on a hell of a streak. Would you like to guess what my rating is going to be? Top of my head, you are going to give Dr. Sleep... Push it into his head. To three fucks. Is that what you're pushing me to say? Three fucks. In the realm where dreams ignite, a film emerged, both dark and bright. Dr. Sleep, the title grand, unveiling horrors hand in hand. It echoes the tale of Shining's might, with glimpses of the past so tight. The overlook, a spectral lure. The secrets dwell, the souls endure. Danny Torrance, haunted by the past, his shining gift, a curse that lasts. With demons lurking, he finds his way. In the darkness, he'll have to stay. The band of travelers, they unite, feasting on essence, a dark delight. Their leader rose, a mistress of dread, her hunger insatiable, a thirst widespread. A young girl, Abra, shines so bright, her powers fierce, a beacon of light. She calls to Danny, seeking his aid, to thwart the darkness, a price to be paid. The ending, a twist, a bittersweet blend. Resolving the darkness, messages send, though it strays from King's original tale, homage and style, no details to fail. Performances strong, visuals grand, direction precise, a skillful hand. In this rhyme, my thoughts I reap. So for Dr. Sleep, three solid fucks I do heap. Ba-bam! With three and a half fucks from me, 3.25 fucks from the professor, and three solid fucks from the comic book guy, that gives Dr. Sleep an average of 3.25 fucks, which puts it in the 20th spot, tied with once Upon a Time in Mexico, Chef, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Roadhouse, and Robocop. It is slightly better than Ratatouille, Galaxy Quest, Red Dawn, and is slightly worse than The Greatest Showman, Big, and Mallrats. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, you can check out our website. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can always find us at www.3guysinaflick.com, where we go ahead and post all of our podcasts, our show notes from every episode, 
blog articles related to each show, and you have a place on there that you can go and you can submit what you would like us to review next. You can find us at all of social media and anywhere that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I just want to send out a special thank you to Edwin for requesting Dr. Sleep. We had a lot of fun watching it and reviewing it. We hope you had a good time listening to it. Uh, I also want to thank anyone else who has listened and or requested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. said i like that one that he said he doesn't say that danny says that i call it the shining yeah i thought that was dick did you watch the movie uh cinematographer michael oh my gosh i'm gonna butcher that name if i say that name what is it filmog nari (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so now annie is part of the true knot andy yeah what did i say you said annie oh (laughs) rose arrives at the outlook and overpowers dan overlook what did i say outlook What's the difference? Overlook, Outlook. <laughs> Microsoft owns them both. But he saves himself by opening lunchboxes in his mind. I see it. I see it. I see it. But he saves himself by <laughs> lunchboxes. <laughs> tasty little snacks in those boxes. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Huh? But I felt he was more of a... I figured... He was Legolas. Legolas. I didn't say it yet. So, who... Um, what did you say? What did you... About it, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like you could have used something from Snake Bite Andy. My or... outlook is positive. No, now you're just an eight ball and not the good kind. Speaking of dick, got a porn name? I do. Do you have one? Kind of. You go first. Dr. Sleaze. I was going to say Dr. Slut. Dr. Slut's not bad. Yeah. Professor? No. <laughs>